Lord, we thank you for the kindness that you have consistently given us by revealing yourself in the pages of your word. Not only do we have a record of your dealings with your people and the establishment of your church, but Lord, we have a record that reveals to us the kind of God that you are. And I ask this morning as we come to another passage that's pretty familiar to us, that we would be able to come afresh and be strengthened and encouraged and taught and challenged by your word, by virtue of your Holy Spirit's ministry through the ministry of your word, and that you would shape us and fashion us, Lord, to be what you have called us to be. So, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And what we are not, would you now make us? In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you. Well, as we've gone through the book of Exodus, we have just really have a wonderful time of seeing some things about God. In fact, I'm reminded once again, you've heard me quote this many times, that very famous line from A.W. Tozer that says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And quite honestly, we can look at the story of the people of Israel in the land of Egypt and the Exodus, and we can see and focus in on them and the characters that are in the story. But the main character that we want to see, of course, is the character of God. He's behind the scenes. He enters into the story a little bit later, but he is always at work. He's there orchestrating the affairs and and being a part of the unfolding of his plan. And and as we think about that, there have been some, some ways that God has been on display because the theme of Exodus is that God will be known. And so let's just think through a little bit about how God has been on display. First of all, He's a revealing God. He is on display in the book of Exodus. That's been part of, of this whole theme of making Himself known. He's also a sovereign God who is working through the affairs both of His children as well as the, the Egyptians, turning the hearts of people to accomplish His purposes. And I'm thinking through, as, as I'm talking about in particular, uh, the, the women that He used early in the story, both the, the Hebrew midwives, uh, his, his parents, Moses' parents, that would, that would be, and then also the daughter of Pharaoh, just turning the hearts of those people to accomplish His purposes. He's also a kind and patient God. You remember how he is interacting with with Moses, with his frailties and his struggles to do what God is asking him to do, and God is patient with him, and he is kind. He's also a compassionate God because we, we see in this text that he hears the cries of his people. He reveals to Moses that he has heard the Christ. He has been aware of what's been going on. He has been present with them during this time of suffering and slavery. We also see that he's a powerful God on full display through the plagues, showing himself not just to be superior to the gods of Egypt, showing that the gods of Egypt are nothing. They are non-existent. They are impotent. There's nothing there. He is the God who is all-powerful. He is the I Am. He's also a just God who exercises His wrath. He carries out justice on those who are uh, oppressive against His people. 
we also see that he's a faithful God because he keeps his covenant and he's committed to his covenant people. And that's why he acts in the way that he does. And as we come to our text today, I want you to notice in, in chapter 12, verses 29 through 42, 42, we see that here God is a watchful God who constantly watches over his people. That is really what this, this text is driving at, that God is always watching over his children. Let me draw your attention to how this section ends, verse 42. And what we'll note is that in some different translations, English translations of the Bible, we actually have some different words that are used. Let me read a few of them. In the King James Version, it says this, It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord. In the New American, it says it is a night to be observed for the Lord. In the New International Version, it says, Because the Lord kept vigil that night. But here in the ESV, I think we have the right sense of what's going on. It says, it was a night of watching by the Lord. In other words, the Lord was actively doing something here. And the word that is used to describe what he's doing is watching. It's the Hebrew word shemer, which literally speaks of a night watch. It's the kind of watching that would be done by a soldier on duty, a night watchman. So it's more than simply observing the things that are taking place that night. It's more than simply a vigil by hanging out with someone while these things are going on. It is actually a watching of care. And in God's case, it is a watching of governance. And this is important for us to understand, friends that God was watching the events of the night because he had promises that he had made and he is seeing to the fact that these promises are going to be fulfilled. So he's not just kind of in the background, just kind of checking things out. He's actively involved, watching, caring, making sure his promises are actually taking place. And there's the promise of salvation for Israel, and there's the promise of judgment for Egypt. Now, friends, God makes promises to his people, and he is present to make sure that they're carried out. And what we read in this text is the fulfillment of those promises. I'm not going to read all of them, but just listen as I mention a number of promises that we've seen already in the book of Exodus. God had promised to rescue his people from Egypt. That's chapter 3, verse 8. God has promised that he would send signs and wonders to reinforce his word and to demonstrate to Egypt that he is God. That's chapter 3 and verse 20. God had promised that Pharaoh's heart would harden, but in the end he would drive the children out of Egypt. God had promised that the Egyptians would know that he was God. Chapter 7, verse 5. God had promised that he would make a distinction between Israel and Egypt and that Israel will be protected. God had promised that his favor would be on Israel and that Egypt would send them away with gold, silver, and clothing. God had promised that Israel would leave in a hurry. God had promised that when he saved Israel that they would know that he was their God. So God had promised many things, 
And as the story is unfolding, it's clear that God is a God who keeps His promises. He watches to govern His promises to fruition. This is the God we serve. Now, in the Psalms, we have a a, a number of verses. I've chosen two just to reinforce this, to help us understand that this is not just in this text. It's throughout Scripture. But we have there in Psalm 121, verses 4 through 5, Behold, he who keeps, this word keeps is the same idea as this word watch. He keeps Israel with, uh, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. This is the night watchman, right? He doesn't fall asleep on the job. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. And then Psalm 145, verse 18, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He's near. So God is always watching. He's always present. He's always governing our affairs. He's always awake to our suffering. He's always fully aware of what is going on. And then as we turn to the New Testament, the same theme is repeated, maybe in a little different way. But in Matthew 28 and verse 20, he's speaking to the disciples and he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so this this attribute of God's watchfulness it's not typically a, a title that we would think of when you, you know, go through uh, Arthur Pink's you know, Attributes of God. It's not one of those attributes you typically think of. It encompasses a number of the attributes all working together. But it certainly is an aspect of what God does. Why? Because we see it here in the text. It was a night of watching for the Lord. So the point here is this, that these events that we read in this chapter have all been promised by God And he is watching so as to govern the fulfillment of his promises. And so in our text today, we see that God is watching in judgment, in humiliation, and in deliverance. And we want to begin here by focusing on the judgment. And I want you to notice here the severity of God's judgment. As we've noted earlier, all the nine previous plagues were preparation for this tenth and final plague. Those plagues didn't compare to this plague. They were bad from the beginning, and yes, they were getting worse and worse and more intense as they went on, but now with this tenth plague, we see the seriousness and the severity of God's wrath, and in particular, that is God's wrath on Israel, surprisingly, but also His wrath on Israel. Egypt. Let's just think a little bit about God's wrath on Israel. Ultimately, that wrath is is distracted or diverted. I used the word averted before. In other words, it's, it's taken away from the people of Israel and it's placed somewhere else on a substitute. Now, the Hebrews were gathering that night, being obedient to what God had called them to do. They had gathered this Passover lamb. That lamb had lived with them for a few days. They had prepared uh, all the things that needed to take place. There was a sacrifice that was made, and the blood was put on the doorpost, just like God had said, because he was saying a destroyer was going to come, and that blood would be a sign for that destroyer, that angel of the Lord, to pass over. And so death comes to the lamb instead 
of the Hebrew people, in particular in this plague, the Hebrew firstborn. And of course, that looks forward to Jesus, doesn't it? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by being that sacrifice once for all. Blood had to be shed. Blood had to be applied. That's why the Apostle Paul describes it this way. And I've added some words in this verse to help us think through what is going on. Paul says, For our sake, He, that's the Father, made Him, that's Christ, to be sin. And just pause. When when it says to be sin, that means that Jesus has taken on Himself all of the sin of mankind, and the wrath of the Father now is being poured on His shoulders as payment. This is the judgment, and this is all on Jesus. And it says, who knew no sin? So the innocent lamb is now sacrificed. The wrath of the Father is poured on Him so that in Him, that's Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. There's so much theology in that one little verse. But friend, make no mistake. Israel's, in Israel's case, God's wrath was poured out, but it was poured out on the Lamb by virtue of sacrifice, by virtue of blood. But here in our text today, the focus is on God's wrath being poured out on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, who would not pay attention to his words and did not heed the counsel of the nine plagues that they had experienced. So we have now Egypt and God's wrath on every firstborn. Notice what it says in verse 29. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. That's the the judgment struck down from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who's in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. So when what God had promised would happen to Israel and Pharaoh now takes place. His judgment comes upon all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And again, notice the extent of God's justice from the king to the captive, from the dungeon to the throne. Even the livestock, the firstborn, would die. Now, this is a little different than what had been said before. What was said before is that this judgment would take place from the king or from the throne to a servant girl. But now we have an expansion of the scope of that judgment. It extends now to the captive in the dungeon. The point is, it doesn't matter your rank or your riches. No one will be granted an exception. No one will receive special treatment. Now friends, this is important to recognize. This justice is served on unbelief and rebellion. You see, those who are privileged in this life will have to meet their maker. They will not be able to barter with God. Their wealth and standing in society won't protect them from God's just wrath. Now, if you look on the other side of the coin, those who have served all their life, maybe those who have been slaves all their life, will have to meet their maker in the same way. They will not be able to find an excuse because their lives were more difficult. Their poverty or oppression won't excuse them from being guilty and deserving of God's 
just wrath. See, God is no respecter of persons. What matters to God is what we do with his son. When we trust that the blood has been shed for us, we will receive eternal life. That's for those who are rich, those who are privileged, those who are poor, those who are slaves. The whole point there is everyone. So God reaches down by striking this blow of judgment. But let's pause and remind ourselves that not only does God exercise judgment on those who deserve justice or, 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 or deserve that judgment to exercise justice, He also reaches down in His grace to grant life to kings in the court and captives in the, in the dungeon. The gospel reaches men and women who gather for briefings in the Oval Office. But it also reaches to the solitary confinement cell of the worst murderer in San Quentin. The gospel continues to penetrate. The, the gospel continues to work. God is in the business of granting His mercy and grace to the worst of humanity. By His own will, we know, because He has chosen us before the foundation of this world, but there's also the aspect of people who then are coming to Him by faith who are in those situations. The classic example in Scripture, of course, is the Apostle Paul, who at one time persecuted Christians, and he did it with zeal until he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. His conversion should reinforce that from a human perspective, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy. If you are still breathing, if your heart is still pounding, there is hope for you to repent, to listen, to bow the knee, to apply the blood of Christ to your life and be born again. And friends, this is one of the reasons we pray for those in leadership. Yes, we pray for them to have wisdom, but we also pray for God to grant them salvation. As Ed prayed earlier, the, the, the greatest need of our day is, is not reform, although there's a place for that, there's a rightness for that, but the, the greatest need in our day is for the gospel to penetrate hearts. So we pray accordingly. And that is why when we hear about people who have committed horrible crimes, that we should both be thankful for justice. Horrible crime deserves justice. It should be exercised. The legal system needs to function that way. But at the same time, we, we ought to also be moved with compassion for their souls. That's a hard thing to do if you've been the recipient of their criminal activity. I think one of the incredible demonstrations of, of kindness and grace has come from those people who have been the recipients of that kind of abuse. But at that time, and enduring that time, they have been praying for those people who are their oppressors for their salvation. I wonder if we have lost that in our modern-day Christianity with all the conflict that is going on. We need to pray for one another for souls to be saved. So there's a justice that is served. But there's also a justice here that is felt. And notice here in verse 30, there was a great cry. Now I'm going to say it again, but I want you to hear these words. And I want you to feel these words. There was a great cry. 
Now, we don't know how the people functioned, whether they just listened to Pharaoh because he was their God, so to speak, overseeing the people and they just conformed to his will, or if they just kind of were blind in what they were doing. But their sons, their daughters, their firstborns were dying. So mothers and fathers and grandparents and, uh, and, and, and sisters and brothers, they were losing people that they loved. It doesn't matter how harsh the circumstances are. When you lose someone like that, there is a cry of anguish and pain and suffering. So, so God's justice is fair, but it is also painful. When justice is meted out, people suffer. And I'm not talking about the person that the justice is meted out on. I'm talking about the periphery people, the family members, the friends of those people who are now suffering. And in this case, everyone is affected. We're told here the king's family, the servants, the Egyptian people, sorrow, pain, grief was rampant that day. And friends, it's a reminder that in our cries for justice, that they include a recognition of the suffering of others, that there will be further suffering and pain experienced by many. That doesn't mean that justice shouldn't be carried out. It means that we need to be compassionate and praying for those who are experiencing the loss. I mean, it's it's the, you know, that image of this man who was on death row, rightly on death row, rightly anticipating his execution, and there's still a mother who loves him, even though he's committed these atrocities. And there's a heart who's suffering. So it's, it's significant, isn't it, that, that we think through these things. Now, there's a significant turn of events that happens now that's being revealed by what's happening in this text. At the beginning of Exodus, the sounding beat of the drum was Israel's groaning, crying out to God for help and for rescue in the midst of their affliction. You'll find that in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now, it's the Egyptians who are crying out in grief, presumably to their God. My friends, there's a justice served and there's a justice felt. But this is the severity of God's judgment. God executes judgment. In that one final day, God will exercise his judgment on mankind. And there will likely be people that you've known in this life who have been friends in this life, maybe family members, maybe children, maybe parents who will have not bowed the knee to God. And we can just kind of be stoic and say, well, psh, you know, that's just their issue. They have to deal with it. But I think there's going to be sorrow and sadness that people would not bow the knee to the creator of the universe, but instead would shake their fist at him and rebel. There's a severity of God's judgment. Now, from there, we move on to what I'm calling the irony of Egypt's humiliation. Irony takes place when the opposite of what you say actually happens, or the judgment that you place on others is turned around and placed on you. 
So let's look first of all at Pharaoh. And notice what we have here in verse 31. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among the people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Now here is the most powerful man in the world being rudely awakened to face things totally out of his control, including the death of his eldest son. My friends, Pharaoh had told Moses that he never wanted to see his face again. But now he summons Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night. And if you remember, Moses had told Pharaoh that one day his officials would come and bow at his feet and beg him to get out of Egypt. That's the first irony in this story, in this text. Secondly, Pharaoh had claimed that he didn't know the God of the Hebrews, but now he tells Moses to go and serve the Lord. And notice it's El, capital O, capital R, capital D. Go serve Yahweh. Pharaoh has had an encounter with the I am. He knows which God he is asking them to appeal to. And then thirdly, ultimately, it's ironic that Pharaoh says, get up, go, take your flocks and herds and be gone. When he had said over and over and over again, I will not let your people go. Now, it's not that Pharaoh is letting Israel go, but he is ordering them to depart. So this is not just him resigning. This is saying, no, I want you to go. Get out of here, which is far beyond our comprehension. Do you see what God is saying here? He's saying to the second generation, this original audience that he's writing to, that there is no human authority that is beyond his control. That he can turn the hearts of kings to do his will anytime. And friends, that is still true today, isn't it? He is, this Pharaoh is the greatest king on the earth at that time. He's repeatedly defiant. He's hard-hearted, but he's no match for the I am. His gods with little g make and made and fashioned by man are, are an empty nothing. They are powerless, and Pharaoh is brought to the place of humiliation. He's just a man. He cannot stand against God. But then he says, after all that, and bless me also. Did you catch that? Now, we should not take this as a statement of Pharaoh's repentance. <laughs> the events yet to come clearly undermine that interpretation. This is a request for Moses and Aaron, as representatives of Yahweh, to appeal to their God on behalf of Pharaoh to withhold any more suffering or plagues. Pharaoh is humiliated, but he is appealing for his humiliation to be stopped. He recognizes that the God of Israel is powerful and victorious, so he is not showing repentance, but he's appealing for relief, for mercy. This is 
the depths that God has brought Pharaoh to. Now, we step back a little bit here because there is a, an historical anchor here that maybe we would miss unless we point it out. 430 years earlier when Joseph had been used by God to protect the Egyptians from a great famine, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt at that time, welcomed Joseph's family into Egypt and welcomed them to settle in the land of Goshen. At that time, Genesis 47, verse 7 and verse 10, we're told that Jacob blessed that Pharaoh. Now, at the end of Jacob or Israel's living in Egypt, as they are embarking out of Egypt, as they are making their exodus here, Pharaoh comes again asking for a blessing from the leader of the Hebrew people. So this idea of blessing brackets the time of Israel's blessing and suffering in Egypt. Truly the ones who have been blessed are Israel. And again, remember, Moses is writing here to the second generation in the wilderness, and he's reminding them of how vast their people are, but they had only started with 70 people when Joseph came with his family to live in Egypt. So God's purpose in blessing his people ultimately wins the day again. So this is the irony of Egypt's humiliation, in particular with Pharaoh. Now let's think about Egypt as a people. Again, notice what it says here. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. You just get the language there. Urgent, send them out, haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. I mean, they, they got it. They figured out where this was heading. They had already experienced incredible suffering. So the point here is that God uses the Egyptians to help make the Israelites do what was still surely not an easy thing to do. You say, what do you mean by that? If people are you know, in oppression, don't you think they would rush at the, the chance to be free? Well, when you have only known one thing, Wandering off into the wilderness may not seem that attractive. You've learned to live with the kind of things that you're used to. So he's using Egypt to help them leave the country of their birth, to, to help them leave the country of their ancestors, to leave the comfort of their homes. Yes, I say the comfort of their homes because that's the life that they understood. They had found a way to function and be settled in that context. And Egypt is now urging Israel to leave. We want you to leave. If you don't leave, we'll all be dead. So please go. Please leave. We're okay with it. Honestly, will you please just leave? So the irony here is that God is liberating the Israelites from bondage in Egypt by being pushed out of Egypt by the very ones who had enslaved and oppressed them and continued to enslave and oppress them. The Egyptians were begging them to leave because they feared the consequences of their God. The text tells us that they were thrust out of Egypt. That's verse 39. Again, this is not what we would be thinking, right? 
You know, why are you not gone already? Get out of here. Now, you, when you look at our country and all the turmoil that's going on, it can leave you in a place of incredible fear and anxiety. I'm sure you've wrestled with this. Violence, looting, rioting, abuse, wherever it's coming from, however it's happening, is always unsettling. The taking over of six blocks in Seattle, government officials unwilling to deal with crime and criminals, Supreme Court decisions that are not based on the rule of law but swayed by politics, the resurgence of the, the coronavirus in many places in our country. This is all very daunting. We might even say that as we look at this, the fabric of our society as we know it seems to be crumbling before us. And we fear what lies ahead. We fear the future for our children. We fear that the, the righteous call for justice for people of color who have been uh, the, the recipients of, of mistreatment is being eclipsed by those who truly are out to destroy this nation even our Christianity. And friends, it's, it's daunting. It's discouraging. But friends, we must always remember that God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are truly beyond our comprehension. And that's why the words of the hymn by the English poet William Cooper are a help to us. I'll put this on the screen so you can read it as we as I walk through it here. He says, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. In other words, don't, don't think lightly of God, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and, and scan his work in vain. We're certainly seeing that. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. And what rich, helpful, guiding theology this is to, to help us see that all the chaos that we see around us is completely and totally in the hands of a watchful, uh, sovereign, loving, in-control God. And we need to turn our eyes to Him. Friends, this is important. Well, having looked then at His judgment and the humiliation of Egypt, we now look to the favor of Israel's Exodus, the favor of Israel's exodus. And by favor, these are all the things that God now has done or, or is doing in this exodus that we find in our text. And divided into two parts. One is God's favor over the exodus in particular, and the other one is God's favor um, over His people in general. 
And so we want to focus now on the Exodus particularly. And this is where some of the promises now are being fulfilled and, and we're seeing that just simply unfolding in the text. First of all, uh, his favor is food. It says, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders, and they baked unleavened cakes, and the dough that they had brought out of Egypt was, uh, was not leavened. Uh, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So simply here, God had already prepared them for this trip by giving them instructions about their unleavened bread. So as they leave, what are they taking with them? What's identified here? Well, they have the tools to make the bread, they have the unleavened dough, and they have the unleavened cakes that have already been cooked, right? So they're going out with food already prepared. They're going out with dough that is yet to be prepared, and they have the tools to continue what they're doing. So God had favored them by preparing them and providing for them. Now, this, te this text tells us that they had not prepared any provisions themselves. He's talking about apart from the instructions that he had given them. In other words, they had not sat down with their phones and listed on their notes app all the things that they would need for their journey, right? All right, we got the tents, got that one figured out. We got the cots, good. Sleeping bags, check. Flashlights, okay, you got that. Pots and pans, okay, we're good to go. Now, you know what it's like when you're going on a trip. The car is packed and you're half a mile down the road and someone says, ah, did anyone pack any snacks? And everyone says, no, I thought you were going to do that. And then mom pipes in and says, oh, I put a few snacks in the bag and in the cooler. There's chips, crackers, nuts, cookies, oranges, yogurts, watermelon, if you like that. I have cold cuts for sandwiches, guacamole for the chips, Cool Whip for the strawberries, and hummus for the crackers. Well, in this case, mom only had time for unleavened cakes, a little bit of dough, and some bowls to make it all in. But God provides for them as they are thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. So God's favor is in his provision for this food. Secondly, we find his provision and his favor by virtue of plunder. This was not only a fulfillment of what God had promised in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 21 and following, it's also a fulfillment of what God has promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. God had promised Moses in Exodus 3 um, that he would not send Israel out of Egypt empty-handed. Let me just read what he says here. And I will give this people favor. So he's anticipating what's going to happen. This is what he said he's going to do. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who, gives, who lives in her house for silver and gold and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. This is the promise made in Exodus 3. Now here in Exodus 12, we find the actual events of these things taking place. And these words are a deliberate reflection and even a repetition of the language of Exodus chapter 3. But this provision is not only a part of what God had instructed and um, proclaimed to Moses and the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 3, it's also part of the Abrahamic promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 15. And here's what it says there. I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, talking about Israel, and afterward they will come out with 
many possessions. And so the, the clarity comes out in Exodus 3, and then we see actually what takes place in Exodus chapter um, 12. So in other words, God's promising Abraham that after the years of captivity of his people, the Hebrew children, his descendants, his seed, will be brought out of Egypt, not empty-handed, but in fact having plundered the Egyptians. Now we must get the sense of this. The Israelites had been an enslaved people with little to show in personal possessions. They didn't have a savings plan, a 401k or an IRA. They didn't have a health care plan. They had nothing except what they could carry with them. And so God provides for them from the very people that had oppressed them. Now please note, this is really important. The children of Israel did not force anything from the hands of the Egyptians. The text is very clear to point that out for us. They were not seeking revenge. There was no violence or looting. They were not going from house to house as mafia thugs demanding payment. Hey, if you don't give us, Finney's going to come and take care of you, all right? None of that was happening. They simply asked God, or asked the people, as God had instructed them, and the Egyptians gave them gold and silver and clothing. Now, what typically happens when an army conquers a people? This would say, hopefully, before the times of the Geneva Convention, but even after that. Well, what happened to Kuwait? when the Iraqi army invaded in 1991? What happened to Nanking when the Japanese invaded in 1937? What happened to large parts of Europe when Napoleon invaded? Well, history will show us that soldiers pillage, they murder, they plunder, they torture, they destroy, and they rape. Now, commanders of disciplined armies, in particular of Christian nations in the past, had to exert enormous force to keep this from happening when their armies occupied other lands. For example, when the Duke of Wellington went into battle to fight against Napoleon in the 1800s, he said that he would tolerate no pillaging and plundering, and if he caught a man stealing so much as a hen, he would hang him on the spot. That is what he had to do in order to keep the army from breaking free and pillaging and taking advantage of the people whose land they were occupying in this war against Napoleon. Well, friends, that's what used to happen. Pillaging, murder, plunder, torture, destruction, rape. But in this case, this ragtag band of liberated slaves left Egypt without abusing their oppressors. They did not lift a finger against the Egyptians. God had done that for them. No, they left with the plunder given to them by their oppressors. It's interesting how liberation theology, which is what what is being kind of pushed in many circles, ends up picking and choosing the bits of Scripture it wants to follow to kind of focus on its agenda. But here we have the liberation of the slaves who go without doing anything in vengeance to the people who were their oppressors. This is powerful, friends. It it shows us the heart of God and how He works and what He desires. 
So God's favor over the Exodus in particular, we have food, we have plunder. Then notice just the people. We, we, we're given some things here, some, some data here that I think is really helpful for us to get a big picture of what's going on. Verse 37, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Just first of all, in this passage, you see how God's favor has been on the children of Israel. We're told that the number of people who left were about 600,000 men. Then you have to say, you know, it says besides women and children, you have to add then those numbers. So you're probably, if those numbers are not rounded off or somewhat, you know, accurate, and I think they are, there's no reason to question it, there's about a million people here. Now, even if these numbers are rounded off, maybe that was an expression that was used to talk about there were just hundreds of thousands of people, all right? It's still a horde of people. And the point here is that God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled with the record of these numbers. And the second generation reading this text would be able to see God's favor on their people knowing that they had grown from 70 to these numbers. The text also shockingly reveals that there were others who left. And these are people that are identified here as a mixed multitude. That expression actually means a rabble. So they could have been Egyptians, they could have been other people from other countries who were also slaves who happened to be there because it was normal for conquering armies to go into places and take captive those that they had defeated and bring them back as slaves. So there may have been other people there who went out along with the Jews as they left Egypt. Now later we find out that this mixed multitude had to conform to the culture of the Hebrews. But here we have this, this favor, not only on Israel, but on others who are willing to follow the God of Israel out with the Hebrews into um, the wilderness. And then finally, it just briefly, uh, it says, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Now you remember in the plagues, there were flocks and herds that were destroyed in the lands of Egypt. And yet, in the land of Goshen, God had made a distinction, and so he protected all of these flocks. And so now they're taking these flocks that were there by means of that protection, and um, now taking that along with everything else into the wilderness. So God's favor is present in particular as the Exodus is taking place. But then we find what I'm calling God's favor over his people in general. Look at verses 40 and 41. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So this is a, an anchor, a timing anchor to help kind of connect dots for us. So the fulfillment of, the, of this promise comes right out of Genesis 15 and verse 16. Again, the Abrahamic covenant. Notice the timing and the circumstances in Exodus 12 are in accord with Genesis 15 and verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. All right? Now, it's, it's, it's worth noting that the timing is described in three ways. Four generations, that's chapter, Genesis 15, 16. In Genesis 15, 13 through 14, it's 400 years. So, 
Now we have 430 years in Exodus chapter 12, also in Acts chapter 7. The first two we can take as a general kind of a rounding of numbers. I mean, four generations, roughly, you know, 100 years each, you know, roughly a generation, right? And the 400 years, again, you could say it's a round number, but the specific number is 430. That's the one that we would focus in on to, to do any timing kind of thing. So 430 years is, the, is this more specific number. But the point of the repetition in verse 40 and 41 is that God has fulfilled His word. All the hosts of the Lord, we're told, went out from the land of Egypt. This is an expression that we'll find used now as Israel continues to move into lands. They are a host. The host of Israel is an expression describing them as an army. So again, get the picture here. As Israel is leaving Egypt, they are going having plundered the Egyptians, again, the Egyptians having given them the stuff freely, walking out of Egypt with all of this plunder, like a conquering army parading out of Egypt, while the Egyptians watched and buried their firstborn children. I mean, that's quite a picture, isn't it? It's quite a picture of God's watchful care over his children. My friends, there's some things I just want to kind of bring to a close now as we conclude our time. I'll draw your attention to verse 42 once again. And notice what it says. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So, this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generation. So first of all, just a reminder here that God is watching. And I want to just, just read Proverbs 15 and verse 3, and it says this, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. <laughs> that just summarizes what's happening in this passage, isn't it? His omnipotence. Omnipotence, His omniscience, His omnipresence, all working together in this watching are a comfort for those who are His children and a curse for those who are shaking their fist at Him. But God is watching both the evil and the good. But I want you to notice now that God's people here are called to be watching. So this is what you find. This is, this is what's driving this text, is that God is watching over this night. But we have this anchored in here where it says, well, God's people then are called to be watching. And he's saying specifically to them that they need to be doing this. So again, let's just connect the dots. We have the Lord on the night of the Passover is keeping watch over Israel. Right? The next thing, the Lord instructed the Hebrews, as they celebrated the Passover in future years and in future generations, that they should keep watch. And that is what Israel did as they celebrated the Passover through the years. But now I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I would ask you to get your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 26. 
And we're going to land ourselves at verse 38. And this is where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. But before we actually go to verse 38, I want us to look at the events that are leading up to this encounter. In verses 17 through 29, again, Matthew chapter 26, look at verses 17 through 29. Even just read the heading if you have headings there. Jesus is with the disciples. He is celebrating the Passover meal with them. He's identifying that one of them would betray him. And he's instituting now out of the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper. So it is the Passover. In verses 30 to 35, Jesus foretells Peter's denial. And then verses 36 through 46, Jesus takes the disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he takes Peter, James, and John further with him and tells them the following words. And this is where we land now at verse 38. It's the Passover night, right? Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's anticipating his soon execution, the shedding of his blood on the cross. Verse 40, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I just, I just want you to notice here that as we think about the Passover and as we think about what God is doing on that first Passover night and he's watching and the commandment for his people as they celebrate the Passover to be watching, now as Jesus is this Passover lamb preparing himself to go to that cross, what is he asking his disciples to do? To watch and to pray. Now the question for us is this. What does watching mean for us today? And I reflected on that because I wanted to think through how could this be a help to us today? What does it mean to watch and to pray? We're certainly not celebrating the Passover. Certainly when we're, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, we can be watching, we can be thinking, we can be reminding ourselves of things. But I came up with four things. There's probably more, but I think these might help us land the plane, so to speak, on, on, the, uh, on the, uh, the runway here of, of, of the Word of God and, and the practical living that we have. Okay? The first thing is this then. It means paying attention to God. And I'm talking here about two ways that we do that. We do it as He is revealed in His Word. So as I'm preaching, as you're reading your Bible, as maybe you're listening to something as far as your devotions is concerned, you are listening, you're looking, you're watching for God who is on display. And I could just draw your attention to Luke 24 in verse 27, this is Jesus as he's with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he, we find in verse 27 there, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. By the way, they didn't know it was Jesus, right? It says, Beginning with the, the Moses and all the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament, he interpreted to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, that he would suffer and that he would die. This is what had to happen to the Messiah. 
At the end of that time, here is what they say. This is verse 32. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? See, paying attention to God, seeing him in his word, your hearts are full and filled with encouragement. This is not some collection of of books and thoughts by man. This is all connected by God. He breathed it out. But also under the section, paying attention to God, he acts to answer our prayers. And here we have Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Again, just listen here. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And the emphasis here is as you pray, pray with that anticipation. Pray not with with emptiness and kind of a lack of faith, pray in such a way that you believe that the God of this universe knows what is going on and can exercise his will to accomplish his purposes. So you pray with thanksgiving, trusting in him, believing in him. So watching means paying attention to God. Secondly, it means committing yourself to the local church. Placing yourself, first of all, under faithful leaders. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. God calls his children to be anchored in a local body of believers and submitting to leadership that is rightly leading them in the ways of God. But it also means pursuing Christ-likeness together in the context of a local church. Galatians 6.1 reminds us of this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There's a sense in which you can say, well, this is the leadership of the church, but it's talking about if you're a follower of Christ and you're mature, you can be a part of this resources to help someone who is struggling in their faith, who's fallen flat on their face. But notice what it says at the end of that. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, this is what happens is that the body of Christ, when it's working together, we are fashioning and shaping one another, using our gifts to the glory of God. And times when we struggle, other people step in to encourage us. Times when we're strong, we're able to help others as they struggle. But we do this by committing ourselves to the local church. Third, by staying alert to the world around us. This is what 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So here, in the context of of the world in which we live, it means be on duty. It means not falling asleep on the job. It means being discerning. It means seeing the the world through the lens of God's word. It's not getting caught up with all the the ebb and flow of culture. It means seeing all of that through the lens of God's word and acting with wisdom and discernment and care. And finally, I would say this. It means looking ahead to the promise of heaven. Oh, we won't turn there, but 1 Thessalonians, each chapter ends with this 
this kind of resounding emphasis on the coming of the Lord as, as kind of like this, this backdrop to say, live your life for Him in light of His coming. And then, of course, in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 3 through 5, we have this, and this will be where we draw things to a close. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded, and here's watchfulness here, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Friends, God is calling us to be a people who are watchful. Just as he was with Israel, just as he asked Israel to celebrate and to be watchful as they celebrate the Passover, he calls us now to live our lives in such a way that we are watchful, we're mindful, we're applying biblical truth to where we are living, to how we are living, what we are seeing. We are called to be a watchful people. Lord, help us today to be encouraged, first of all, by the reality that right now, in this moment, in our present circumstance, in our sheltering in place, in the struggle that maybe we're going through, in some kind of a conflict that we're in, that you are present and you are watching and you are orchestrating. What a great God we have. You are awesome because you are present with us and you care. But Lord, you call us then, in light of that, to also be watching. So Lord, help us to be looking for you. Lord, help us to, to eagerly seek to understand you more day by day. But help us to see that the church is not something that we just do. The church is vital to our Christian walk. And that's why we gather even on a Sunday morning through live stream, not just because we want to be cool and hip, but because this is what you've called us to, to be your people, to be together and grow together. Lord, help us to be committed to that. Lord, help us to be mindful that you have placed us in a world that is sinful and it is made up of sinful people. And we are part of those sinful people that are in this world. We live among sinful people. As Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips. I'm rubbing shoulders with people with unclean lips. And yet, Lord, you've called us to live in that context. You've called us for 2020 with all the things that are happening. This is the world that you have called us to live out the gospel in. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Uh, Lord, with discernment, with your word, uh, with, with a kind of understanding of, of what you're seeking to accomplish. And then, Lord, will we do all that with our, our foot in this world, but also our hearts anchored in the certainty of heaven, the certainty of your return. So, Lord, help us to be watchful and, Lord, to live our lives accordingly and to celebrate, Lord, how you have liberated us from our bondage and Lord, now help us to live with that freedom in such a way that we re reflect who you are 
and would communicate the truth of the gospel both to our family, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, to our fellow students, whoever they may be, would we, Lord, do what we can to live for your glory, we ask now in your precious holy name. Amen.